Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Victim Service Center podcast. Uh, here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week we are talking about ACEs and parenting as a survivor. My name is Libba Vanapool. My pronouns are she, they, and I'm the volunteer and community engagement coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today I have Cherie Ben-Joseph, LCSW, Cherie uses she, her pronouns and is the National Outreach Coordinator for the Center for Child Counseling of Palm Beach County, Florida. She is an expert on child sexual abuse primary prevention with a focus on customizing training and curriculum for school, camp, and other youth serving organizations as well as reaching parents with practical tools to keep their children safe from child sexual abuse and exploitation. I also have Nita Paul. Nita uses she, her pronouns is a licensed mental health counselor, national certified counselor, and registered play therapist who has worked with children and families since 2010. Nita is passionate about working with children and families who experience trauma and helping them heal from these adverse experiences. She provides individual, group, dyadic, and family therapy and focuses on providing trauma-focused treatments to children and parents who suffer from post-traumatic stress and attachment issues. She also provides trainings for caregivers and providers in a variety of topics including impact of trauma and ACEs on children to help adults promote resiliency in children. As a brief introduction, on this episode, we'll be exploring adverse childhood experiences, usually referred to as ACEs. It's possible you've heard of ACEs and the impact they have on people in their adult lives. The CDC started conducting ACE studies in the mid nineties, and today we know that nearly 60% of adults have experienced one type of ACE. So today we'll be talking about what exactly are ACEs, how does trauma impact how we parent? And what are some things parents who are survivors can do to help teach regulation to children while also taking care of themselves? With that, Cherie, Nita, thank you so much again for being here today with us. Thank you everyone for being here. And it's, yeah. it's my pleasure. Yeah, we're glad to be here. Excited for the event. Let's do it. Uh, so if you don't mind, could you take a moment to talk about ACEs, what they are, uh, and how they impact childhood development? Sure. As you mentioned, about uh, adverse childhood studies uh, studies started in mid-90s, between 1995 and 1997. And this was actually an accidental study. Uh, they weren't 
planning on uh, studying the impact of adverse childhood experiences. This was an accidental study as they were working on a diabetic center with people that are struggling in terms of weight gain and losing weight and keeping the weight on. So as they were looking into some of the factors, how this was going on, and they seen some things that were physically or scientifically not possible, like putting on a lot of weight in such a short period of time after losing so much weight. So they started looking into what else is going on. And in the study, Kaiser Permanente, which is an insurance company in California, and CDC started collaborating. And they said, there's something else going on in here that we need to see and find out what other factors are contributing to people's struggles, people's difficulties. And as a result of it, they did a some questions in terms of what was going on in childhood experiences and, and trauma. And they had this question about their first sexual intercourse. I'm sorry, sexual experience. And how much they, the participants in this clinic, wait during this time, their first sexual experience. And they got responses such as like 30, 40 pounds. And they were really shocked by this. They were thinking about like, Typically, you're probably what, four years old, five years old, around, you know, when you are 30, 40 pounds. And they realize, okay, this is something to really look into and what else is going on. There's definitely sexual traumas that we are seeing, and not for everyone, but commonly, and some other traumas. So they just started asking more questions about different kind of adverse childhood experiences. So they did this study, and they in this survey, they created this survey that focused on three areas, which is abuse neglect and household dysfunction. And abuse focused on physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect focused on physical and emotional neglect, and household dysfunction focused on you know, challenges in the household like parental mental health, parental substance use, separation, divorce, parental incarceration, domestic violence, and things of that sort. And so they look on these areas. They created a survey and studied 17,400 people. And they found significant correlation between these adverse childhood experiences that people experienced before the age of 18 and lifelong physical and emotional health. So Significant outcomes, again, when we think about the correlation between chronic illnesses like heart disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases, diabetes, and also emotional and mental health difficulties such as depression, anxiety, suicide, and so many other diseases. As you mentioned, 60%, 67% actually had at least one point, at least one ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And they also found correlation if you have one adverse childhood experiences, you have an 87% chance of having another one. They kind of go together as you can imagine you're having difficulty in your household, there's domestic violence happening, or there's parental mental health ha problems happening substance use, you can see how that can kind of lead into other challenges, other traumatic experiences, right? And then they found a big correlation again between really health risk behaviors as well in terms of these traumatic adverse childhood experiences. They found things like 
if you experience four or more of these like adverse childhood experiences, you are more likely to suffer from depression, 12 times more likely to attempt suicide, 10 times more likely to abuse drugs. So things that nature, again, there's definitely the resilience factor, which we're going to focus on that, but it's important to kind of highlight the foundation and, and also the outcomes of this study for us to understand how it can impact and it does impact us as parents, as you know, caregivers, and also our children as well. And it's a lifelong impact. So that's kind of how ACEs started. Yeah. And I want to jump in and add that for the listeners out there, they're hearing about this ACEs study. And also, what does that mean for you? You can actually, we're going to give you resources towards the end, but we'll give you the resource where you can actually check your own ACE score. And that will give you insight as to where you're at in this experience and how, and we'll talk a little bit more as we're going along about how that correlation does impact our day-to-day lives. We didn't realize it, but why we do what we do has a lot to do with what happened in our childhood. And that's really the crux of where we're going to go today. We're going to take that ACE experience and say, okay, we're going to turn this trauma around. How does one go about doing that? We wish we could leave all this stuff in the past, but it does stay within us and it does creep up in our daily living. Yeah, I, you know, that significance of things in our childhood shaping, not even just maybe like our behaviors, right, as adults, but also, you know, Nita, like you were talking about chronic health issues, you know, down to maybe even like a cellular level on, you know, how our body is doing in addition to our mind um, and how ACEs, when I saw that number, 60%, we know someone or ourselves have experienced an ACE in our childhood. Like you said, uh, Libba, definitely it is important to know the impact of it on our bodies, on our brain development, because it impacts our neurodevelopment it interferes with that. So when we think about our brains, our bodies, the brain is the center. It controls everything. It helps the functioning of everything in our bodies. So cortisol is the stress hormone that keeps kicking in and increasing as we are under toxic stress. So there's different types of stresses. When it is toxic stress, which is the chronic stress that we experience without any buffering relationships around us, without that person or people that are there to help us cope with the traumatic experiences, then that cortisol keeps going on and on and on. And it does impact, like you said, every cell in our body, every organs in our body. So it is important, like Sherry was saying, that we see it as something that happened to us. And that is physical, that was out of our control. But now that we have the control so we can empower ourselves so that we can move forward processing and working on it so that we can heal and, and move on from it. Yeah, and you know, I would love to kind of talk a little bit more about how, you know, trauma, how ACEs in particular, um, how does that impact how we ourselves parent, you know, as adults? If 60% of folks have experienced one ACE in their lifetime, I think it's safe to say that someone somewhere in that 60% has uh, become a parent themselves now. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit more from from you both about how it impacts how we parent. So I want to add a little little bit more also regarding ACEs. 
with the connection to the sexual abuse ace, the or the ace of sexual abuse, because as Nita pointed out, it was an accidental find that it turned out that so many of these people in this other study had a history of sexual abuse that never was disclosed or or provided care for, but it was impacting their long-term health. That was a major breakthrough in the world of ACEs, yes, but of sexual abuse, sexual abuse prevention, the fact that, that it has such a negative impact. And right now, just to understand the numbers, there's about 60 million adult survivors just of sexual abuse, so just of the trauma of sexual abuse in the United States today. And what are we all doing as survivors of that? Well, we're living our lives, we're working, we're raising kids, we're, we have grandchildren, we're aunts and uncles, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And going back to your question, Libba, it impacts every cell in our body. It impacts how we relate to people. And there's no one boxed profile of how it happens. Absolutely. Everybody's experience with trauma, no matter what the trauma is so unique. So for some, it might become as a parent, we might become overprotective and over controlling and over sheltering as a parent. Or if we're really disconnected, we could be turning in the other direction and providing no limits and no structure and turning to substance to not even knowing why we're needing to turn to substance if we haven't had any experience focusing on, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? And we we can focus on food as an issue to uh, soothe ourselves, et cetera. So there is no one way of how it affects us. First, we have to figure out how does it affect us as a human, as an individual? And then there's the trickle down effect of how does it impact our parenting? And what is it about? It's really all about relationships. So Nita can talk extensively about the attachment factor for people who have had trauma and how that affects their relationships. Yes, definitely. The attachment piece is huge and it starts at birth and even prenatally. There are studies being done in terms of prenatal babies in the womb, again, recognizing the son of the mom. And right, we know that there's so much connection or, or the dad or other caregivers around them. So there's that, that connection starting even prenatally. But if we think about birth, it is we may not think about it that way, but it is such a traumatic experience for a newborn. You're going from the womb where you had your food, you your body temperature, or everything was correlated as standard and controlled for you, and you got everything you needed. And now you're coming into this bright, cold room, your food sources cut out. So when you think about all those experiences, it's an amazing experience for us as parents, but it's traumatic for a newborn. So what does a newborn do? What does a child, a new baby do? So they cry for everything. They are so dependent on us and all they can do is cry for their needs to be met. So let's imagine this newborn now crying in the crib and not getting the, their food not getting change or not getting that eye contact, not getting that touch that they need. So important for their overall development, for their sensory development, for their brain development, emotional development. So what happens if they're crying over and over and over and they're not getting these needs met? So they're definitely not feeling well, right? Like Sheree mentioned before, it stays in our bodies. This baby will not have an 
explicit memory, conscious memory of these happening, but their bodies are feeling it. The cortisol is kicking in and, and they are feeling it everywhere. And within these first experiences of our lives and these attachments that we have with our parents, with our caregivers, we develop the view about ourselves, about others, and about the world. So if I'm that baby crying in the crib and not getting my needs met, I'm probably going to think that I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy of care. And again, I'm not thinking that consciously as a newborn, but I'm feeling it everywhere in my body. And my, my parent, my caregiver is not really trustworthy. So the world is unsafe because I depend on that person, right, for survival. So, and if we have, if we develop these views, again, all so early that we, we will not even have any conscious memory of, but we have these views and that can lead to us reacting and responding in so many different ways in real life that we might think, oh, why did I even do that? Where did that come from, right? All of a sudden, I'm feeling these things in my tummy. What is that about? And again, the awareness of it. So we will, we can have these feelings or these reactions and behaviors that we don't even know what it is about because they were all pre-verbal and we don't have the words and we don't have the conscious memories to, to correlate, to explain the reasoning. So that's why attachment is really, really important for all life, yeah. Yeah. And to note on that, what you just mentioned about attachment and relationships having such a significant impact in our development and how we um, maybe express ourselves or view ourselves and or view ourselves, right, as adults causing reactions from us, maybe emotional reactions. I would love to um, talk about obviously parents have a role in how they teach children, their children, uh, to regulate their emotions. I would uh, appreciate hearing, you know, more about, you know, what's the importance of attachment and relationships in teaching regulation? Well, before you jump to that, <laughs> we can't teach our children something that we are not connected with yet ourselves. Of course. And it's so, it's an interesting conundrum because we want right away when we have our kids, we want to do the best by them. We want to, you know, get the best toys and get the best activities and do all these amazing things. But the reality is sometimes we haven't done our own work to have the skills. And so many of the survivors that I speak to have expressed to me, how do we have the time to go back and do our own personal work on our own trauma to do better by our kids when we really went from whatever our experience in childhood was pretty much straight into marriage in our 20s-ish, maybe late 20s, early 30s, and then boom, we're having kids. And many of us haven't done the work yet. And so a lot of the people I speak to are having time to do the work in their late 40s, early 50s. Their kids are grown and flown. And you know how we sometimes joke, well, I'll deal with that when I'm older, I'll get a therapist, you know, and the kid, you know, kids joke about it. Oh, thanks, mom. I'll go get a therapist. Now, this next generation of parents has an opportunity that I did not have because we just didn't have this information yet. But now we have these resources, we have this knowledge, and it really is very scientifically based that there are things we need to learn to do as the adults 
that we don't have to take necessarily right away a deep dive into our own personal trauma, but there are ways we can teach ourselves skills of self-regulation that we can start training ourselves to use, which is the key. It's like a habit. You need to form a new habit, train ourselves by training ourselves. We're modeling for our children. Right. And that's really where it starts. And it could be, you and I were talking about, it could be as simple as you're in a confrontation. It could be with a toddler or it could be with a 14 year old. It's triggering something. You're getting way more angry than probably the context of whatever the issue is. And I always joke with parents and I say, the first thing you need to do is take a step back and say, have I eaten lately? Am I in a place where I need to take care of myself and eat and drink so that I am going to handle this situation better? And if it's not just basic need met of food and nutrition, what is it that is triggering? Now, you might not be able to go back and figure that out. But you can certainly start recognizing that increase in the stress level. And then what is something, some bit of self-regulation? So for me, I know I can literally put my hand on my desk, especially if it's at work and I'm stressing out during work, put my hand on my desk nonchalantly and start grounding myself. And nobody has to know what you're doing, but you're becoming conscious of your area. You put your hands on your desk right now. You'll feel it changes the inner mechanisms of your nervous system just from doing that. For some people, especially for kids, we do push the wall. But these are things you can raise, just like you teach your kids, say, please say thank you, you know, the typical things. We can say, oh, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're, I see that you're getting, you're feeling upset. Here's a glass of water. How does that feel in your mouth? And there's ways to calm down your nervous system. So, but first, once again, it has to start with the adults gaining some control over their own nervous system, over their own self-regulation. When I talk to parents or work with parents, one thing we use a lot or in our trainings that we share with them is the mask and an airplane analogy, right? When you're in an airplane, they tell you this in the beginning, please put your mask on first before you can put your child's mask on. What would happen? You would run out of air before you can even put theirs on in case of an emergency. So it's the same thing if we are not taking care of ourselves and if we are not aware of these challenges and difficulties and triggers we may have and helping ourselves calm down, then it is very difficult for us to help children learn any kind of self-regulation skills. And another thing I wanted to add to that is the importance of co-regulation especially in early childhood. As I mentioned earlier, a newborn has no ability to self-regulate. And guess what? That newborn does not learn how to self-regulate on his own. There's always that adult taking care of them, meeting their needs, providing that emotional safety, connection, attachment. And with that, they learn how to regulate themselves. If the caregiver is not able to do that, they really struggle with this. So it is very important for us to feel regulated, do our self-regulation, those skills that Sheree mentioned and so many others that is out there that we can talk more about and then provide that to our child and then they see what we are doing. Modeling is the key and it is okay for them to know we are also feeling dysregulated. It's not just them because they are the kids. Everyone feels dysregulated. It is, we are human. It is normal. We just need to be aware of it. And we just need to do something to help ourselves in the moment. 
And Nita, that was exactly where what I was going to say. You know, we have a lot in our in our world, in our especially in our emotional world, we have a lot of issues with shame and blame and guilt and all of these things. And we really need to leave that at the door. And I say to parents, when you're looking, you know, or adults, when you're looking back at your childhood, take the best and leave the rest and work through it from there. Blaming our parents for what happened in our childhood does not actually help our healing process. And they did the best they can with what they could at the time. You know, they did. And, and sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with them at all. You could have had great parents and still have experienced trauma outside of the home. So it, it just depends. But the idea that we need to have grace for ourselves and have a lot of patience and know that we got to this point where we're parenting these kids, we're, we're many years into our lives. It's not something that turns around overnight. So having patience, trying new things with kids, especially with the co-regulation, seeing what works in your family. If you have a partner, working with your partner on it, trying not to do it alone, that's the way to find successful increments over time. Yeah, you know, we've dropped this term in here, a co-regulation. I would love it if you guys could just maybe shed a bit more light on on what that is, what that looks like. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, So co-regulation is when a child regulates themselves depending on their relationship and their caregiver's ability to regulate themselves and the child, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, so almost, almost picture in a baby, in a baby situation, almost picture that you've got this colicky crying baby and you're trying to calm that baby down in that situation. And it could be that it's skin to skin contact. It could be the the bouncing up and down, but you're literally working hard to keep yourself calm. And it will literally, I call it infusion, but it will literally infuse into that baby. For a child, it could be that they fell and hurt themselves and they need calming down or they saw something uh, online or something happened to them that they need to literally work with another person to learn how to calm themselves down. The goal is that eventually they'll be able to do it themselves. Right. So it, in this scenario, it's almost like when, like you pointed out, Shri, right? The child falls, they hurt themselves. A lot of the time we see like the kid looks straight to the parent to gauge, you know, how serious is this right now? Do I need to start crying in this moment? So with that, am I hearing right? That's kind of in that moment. That's that's co-regulation in terms of yes. know, and, in, and it's so interesting because parenting styles or parenting philosophy goes through trends. It literally goes through trends that have to do with back in the day, Dr. Spock, he said, blah, 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 blah. And then the next one said this and, or, or what's happening in our media is affects our parenting. So we used to be run up to that child and say, are you okay? You know, and we've got a lot of emotion and drama. Well, that's what they're reading. And that's not necessarily, that's our issue. That's not their issue. So we need to stay calm. Even if there was a ton of blood, we still need to stay calm and be there, be literally be there. Uh, their, I don't know, I was going to say they're grounding, their tree, so that they can look at you and say, are you going to help me take care of this, please? <laughs> and we're going to get, yes, we've got this. 
And that's the communication that we're doing when we're co-regulating. And um, in terms of that piece, they look for our cues and responses and reactions, right? And that goes, again, all the way to attachment that I was talking about because of that connection and that attachment they know exactly when we are not feeling well. We may not tell them, we may not raise our voice, we may not show it in our behavior, but I know my kids know when I am dysregulated. When I am stressed, it's inside me, I do my best not to show it, but they feel it because they are so, they know us. <laughs> I feel like sometimes better than we know ourselves <laughs> because again, they have a huge history with us. So they know exactly when our eyes are not feeling well or looking well or, or when we are feeling a little anxious. And so it is, that's another reason is so important for the co-regulation piece and their ability to self-regulate, learn self-regulation from that later on, that piece is, is really the key. And jumping onto what Nita just said, we have to recognize, of course, where we're at, but also if we can take it to the next level and then label our experience, our own feelings. Don't put adult problems on children. I am absolutely not saying that because that is male adaptive behavior. That's not a good thing to put our own adult problems on children. But if my kid knows that I've got a big lecture to give the next day and I'm both excited, but a little nervous, that's healthy. And so to share with them, I'm so excited about tomorrow. I've prepped. This is what I've done. Do you want to hear it? You know, whatever it is, depending on the age of the child and the topic, but for them to know that you do feel those feelings too, and to label those and say, here's what I'm going to do, or here's what I'm doing to chill myself out. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to walk barefoot in the grass. I'm going to go work in the garden for 10 minutes. And that's going to help me get my head together. So it starts with that type of language in the home. Yeah, that's absolutely. And, you know, I would, I would love to hear more about that. Maybe uh, hearing you both talk about some, some practical, some applicable skills that parents can utilize. Okay. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I wanted to point out is before we get into how does it look in the home is how can trauma sometimes pop up for us as adults that we're not even aware of and therefore don't even recognize how it's impacting our family? So we can be quite disconnected from what's happened in our childhood, yet it could still be impacting us on our daily lives. So I wanted to tell a story about a dad who was very, very excited because the mom and dad decided they were going to send their kid to sleepaway camp for the first time. And they had a tradition in their family of doing that. And when the child was getting to be about the age of 10, they signed the child up. They were preparing for it. And all of a sudden, the father started not feeling well. And slowly over the next few months, as the time was coming for that child to leave for camp, the father was having some really serious mental health and physical health difficulties. And it turned out that a suppressed trauma that he had experienced was bubbling up. He did not have a mental awareness of it. It was genuinely the body keeps the score type of experience. And it drove him to actually have to go inpatient once they figured out what was happening. 
And so for a few, for about a week or two, he went inpatient and he, he came to realize that at around the same age, when he went to sleepaway camp, he had been sexually abused by a staff member. With that said, this is so important that we understand how some of these things came up. Now, while it was coming up for him and he didn't know why, he was saying, I don't think you should go to camp. And he was getting really angry about, I don't want you to want to go to camp. And he was saying all these things that made no sense. So sometimes we have to take a step back and say, what is happening to us? And it, once again, it can come up in a, like almost like a traditional type experience. We hit a milestone of some sort and then a, a trauma can resurface and it can peak. So I just want people who are listening just to sort of be aware of their own behaviors. And if something is happening for them, it could be that it's triggering something that happened in your childhood. So getting back to your original question about what you can do in, in the family. Nita said all these wonderful, amazing things about what you can do in early childhood. And I always like to remind parents that it's never too late to start these habits because wouldn't it be great if we all started when they were really young? For sure. But what if my kid is already 11 and 14? There's a lot of resources that are out there, especially on our Center for Child Counseling website, literal tip sheets about how to start having some of these conversations. But one of the things that, one of the measurements that I like to do is I'm big into table talk and I encourage families to have at least four to five dinners together a week. And I know that as the kids get a little older into upper elementary and especially the middle and high, it's very hard to do that. But making that a priority grounds the family as a family. We start there. No technology at this table. And once again, it's, it's a tradition. Kids know they don't bring their technology to the table, you know, unless there's going to be something they're discussing, you know, about it. And then having conversations about what, you know, they start with basic stuff. What was something kind you did today for someone else? What was some, something kind someone did for you? So really basic, you know, warm them up before we're getting into the teaching them these you know, regulation and whatnot. So get them used to having these conversations, especially with their siblings, because having support, long-term support together with their siblings is, I don't know, it's a gift if you have siblings that you are really close to. So that's, that's part of that as well. But then dealing almost like a little group therapy session, <laughs> using it as a way, ways to show examples of things, you know, hey, I see Johnny is really upset about something today. What can we do to help? And then literally giving them tools. Let them give each other tools. Here's what I do to help myself calm down. Tell us what happened, Johnny. Learn teaching them how to express in feeling words and the story, because we want children to learn how to use their voices in a way that eventually if they needed to come to you with something, they could. So I call that table time and table talk and setting a structure for children to know this is one of the many places they can come to their family or to their trusted adult to talk about important things. So that's one of my tips for families. Nita, I'm sure you have lots more. <laughs> that was great. And I wanted to go along with that and kind of focus again in my specialty a little earlier ages in terms of how do we get there? How do we help our children feel comfortable sharing their feelings? First of all, 
identifying and knowing their feelings because we don't know what happy, sad, mad. We are having all these feelings as a one-year-old, as an infant, as a two-year-old, but we can't really name these feelings. So it's really hard to expect them to share if they don't have the words for it. So it's really important we call these as reflections or reflective listening. So if your child is having a meltdown, even if they are two years old, one year old, and just identifying that feeling for them, you are frustrated because they're trying to do something, they're not getting it done, right? They're throwing a temper tantrum. Isn't that like what happens every day in a toddler life? (laughs) And like we pull our hairs out and we're like, what is going on? How can I help you right now? But just being in the moment with them, that's really the importance of connection again. Just naming their feelings. You are frustrated. It is not working out. You have, you don't know how to tell me what's going on right now. Just basically telling them what we are observing what we think they are feeling. It's not really putting words in their mouth. It's more so our observation. And I know in my play therapy experience and mommy experience, if we are naming any feelings wrong, they will let you know if they have the words for it. I remember like in one of my play therapy sessions, one of my clients came in, right? And he was like destroying the playroom, throwing all the toys. And I was like, you are really angry. And he goes, no, I am sad. And that's the way he was expressing his sadness. So we have all these feelings and everyone experienced it differently and express it differently. So we worked on sadness where everyone thought he was this angry child. So um, it's really important that, yeah, working with them on like kind of help them identify. And I just want to add that as parents, we tend, especially if we've got a trauma background, we tend to personalize when a child is having that tantrum. It's a bad reflection on us. That's not the case. They're just children being children. But we as adults have to behave as adults. And sometimes that takes a lot of practice. So to be able to do reflective listening, you have to not personalize, you know, you're making mommy upset now. When you're upset, I get upset or stop that. You know, that's what our that's how we were raised. That's the language that many of us are familiar with. So we tend to, it's very easy to fall back on what we know because that's what we know. So really what need is offering is for us to do it in a new way. And that does take patience and practice, but the payoff is we are creating a healthier generation. So really taking a step back and saying, you know, yes, I, I, re- I vividly remember being on a trip with my children. This obviously goes back a ways. My son, who's now 23, he was about three. And we were at some forest place in North Carolina and he decided to have a tantrum. And he was literally having a tantrum like right in the cafe area, right on the floor, all bowled up, screaming and yelling, doing his thing. And I just stood there patiently. And it was the first time I became very conscious of what parenting am I going to do now? Instead of just reacting, I said, he needs something now. So I sat on the ground next to him and I just said, mommy's here. I'm going to hang out with you until you're ready. Because I didn't, I honestly, if I had picked him up, he would have, he would have hurt me. Like he was flailing and people looked at me like I was, I was off the charts. And eventually, eventually he calmed down and we got up and we walked away, but it was me not letting the rest of the world have an impact on my parenting in that moment. And that took a lot of, at the time, courage. I was conscious of it. Every All eyes were on us. 
And even if we're home alone, we still feel all eyes are on us and judging us. And that can become even more challenging when we have our own trauma that's impacting the way we are talking, uh, we are responding, and we are feeling in the moment, first and foremost. We all have, I don't think I mentioned, but I always say we all have our own ACEs. No one is immune to ACEs. And um, I always share in every training and every gathering, my my ACE score is four. Being aware of those experiences, those adverse childhood experiences, and how it is impacting me in the moment in terms of responding to my child. I was expected to follow every rules, any rules, and it was, I couldn't be out of line. And that definitely affects what I am expecting from my child. And that definitely limits my ability to accept him as he is. So we talk about that acceptance piece because it's huge. So their behaviors might not be appropriate in the moment or might not be safe at times, but their feelings are valid. So that reflection piece that I was talking about really helps us communicate to them. Your feeling is valid and that's okay to feel these feelings. And then we can move on and do some limit setting around it, give them some rules and structures, because especially children that have experience with trauma and need structure, every child needs structure and routine, because that's the way they thrive, that's the way they feel safe and secure, uh, because they know what's expected next. They know what's about to come next. So that is very important, the consistency. But once that happens, again, the validation piece, the reflection piece, and then we can set the limits and we can communicate the rules to them. So that is the important piece because sometimes we do that reflection piece and we connect. That's huge. That's first step. But then there's also some limits to if they are engaging in unsafe behaviors, for instance. So again, as, as parents, that's important for us to know, know our triggers, like I said, how it is impacting us. And also, I mean, I want to throw one more thing in there too, our family culture and our culture of origin as well. There's parenting styles, like Sheree was talking about earlier, how there has been so many different styles that we have seen over the years. And then in our culture, it might be totally different. And we might be impacted by these expectations. Why isn't my child behaving the way that is accepted in my country? And I, I'm seeing my family now. What is it going to be? He's not listening or he's not doing this. So all that definitely impacts. So being aware of those things and then conscious of it and do our against self regulation so that we can respond in that accepting ways because our attitude changes everything. If children feel judged, in the moment because of simply what they are feeling, they are definitely going to respond and react in more negative ways. Yeah. You know, um, I'm reaching pretty far back into the conversation when I say this, but, you know, Cherie, you mentioned when you were telling your story about, you know, a body keeps the score kind of moment, which I just want to clarify real quick to, to anyone who's listening, who has, who's not aware of that book, hasn't, hasn't read that book in, in a nutshell, it talks about, you know, the things that the body remembers maybe when the mind doesn't, you know, and how the, how that impacts us as individuals. And, you know, to your point, Nita, right, knowing our triggers so that we can manage them, our emotions, our reactions in those moments. So, you know, for folks who have triggers, whether or not they are or aren't aware of what they are, you know, if something surfaces, can you 
uh, expand on how we can practice compassion for ourselves in those moments, self-regulation pieces, mindfulness things that we can do. Yes, definitely. So compassion for ourselves to me is first and foremost. Parenting, there's no manuals for parenting. (laughs) We don't know what we are doing. And um, there's no one right way either. There's so many different styles and and techniques. But it is important for us to have that compassion for ourselves that we are doing our best. We are trying. And of course, being aware of also what other resources, what else we can do. But in the moment of feeling that helplessness, because trauma does that to us. If we have past trauma, when we are going through challenges, we might feel more helpless and hopeless and really stuck in the moment. For us to be able to move forward after processing what's happening, we need that that is in the moment, I am doing the best I can. Right now, focusing on my body, seeing what's happening, where I am feeling it in my body and compassion. I'm doing the best I can and I'm not okay. And it's okay to be okay. Not okay. It's okay to be not okay. It is okay to seek help. It is okay to seek social relationships, family relationships, connect with others. And also I'm doing the best I can is really important in the moments when we feel that way, because in the moment we are doing the best like we can. And then once we are able to get out of our challenging moment, and then of course, looking for more resources and what is going on, because if we don't have compassion for ourselves, it's really difficult to do the self-care. That starts with that. And then the self-care things and mindfulness and grounding that Sherry was talking about earlier too, it is important to do it when we are calm and regulated to get to know our bodies. And this is very important because if you're just focusing on those negatives, right? In the moment I am feeling stressed, where am I feeling in the body? But if I don't know where I feel my calmness, peace, happiness, it is really difficult for me to identify when I am not feeling that way, right? And this also goes goes for children. We work so hard as parents, guilty here, to teach them things when they are dysregulated, when their thinking brain is offline, they cannot learn things if they are dysregulated. And guess what else happens when they are dysregulated? <laughs> we are also dysregulated. So two dysregulated brains and bodies don't work well together. So it is really important for us to also teach them those skills that we talked about while they are calmer. Make that a habit. Wake up in the morning and w- Give them a big hug and a a bit, whatever they like to do. Do they like to be rocked? They are five years old. They can still be rocked, right? They can have that connection with you for a few minutes. That really helps calm calm their body down if that's something they like. Some children may not like that. Of course, that depends on what your child likes. But having that moment and just doing some breathing as you're holding them or as you're sitting across from them, first and foremost, on their level all the time, having that eye contact, because when we are above them, that first of all communicates, we are being the authoritative figure, but not really that relationship is not there, right? We want to be eye to eye on their level. And then just saying, oh, it's a beautiful morning. Let's take a deep breath. Oh, just doing a couple of these in the morning as we wake up, or you're noticing that they are getting a little fidgety because they don't want to go to school or whatever the reason might be. They don't want to have breakfast. And then you're realizing that they are starting to get a little fidgety and then throwing it another one there. Oh, 
let's pick up some oranges from the tree. Let's reach, 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 reach. Let's take a deep breath and then just do it with them for three times. And it might take 10 seconds in the moment, but that will help them feel regulated and calmer for hours afterwards. That can be something so simple. Right. Yeah. Like really setting the baseline for them in that moment, you know, to your point of instead of reacting when they are dysregulating, setting that stage of, you know, this is where you can come back down to. Exactly. And you can go back to that. Like you said, when they're dysregulated, remember when we were picking up the oranges? So they have a sensory and physical experience that they have had and they felt good. So that is very important for especially young children. That sensory piece is so important because that's how they really body keeps the score. Those sensory inputs that we have from everywhere, anywhere around us is stored in our bodies as well. And we can connect to the feelings from those sensory experiences so much better. So if a child is having a really hard time, let's say it's a temper tantrum or or older child meltdowns and all that. So we can use that reflection again, letting them know we understand them. You're sad. You're really upset. And then setting the limit but that's not for throwing. I am not for hitting. She's not for hurting, whatever the limit is. And then giving them some tools to calm down. So let's take a deep breath together. But we need to make sure that the child is already getting a little calmer before we can offer a strategy. So that's an important thing because we want to do the teaching moment as they are there because We are parents and we are caregivers. We want them to feel better right away. We don't want to wait. We are just, we need to do this in the moment, but then it can actually cause more dysregulation because they are not able to do that in the moment. So they get more frustrated and then it gets even worse. So I would love to pick up on what Nita said about being aware of where, what you feel like as the adult, when you are self-regulated, when you are in your happy place, when you're in that calm moment. And, and that I think is key when it comes to the self-care question. So I think a lot of parents, especially parents who have experienced trauma, but really any parent, but mostly parents who have experienced trauma, feel a lot of guilt about taking time for themselves. And this is definitely part of the MO. I'm sure Nita can explain why, but we'll skip that for now. But the idea is that we need to know that it is more than okay. It's helpful to the entire family, of course, that we take care of ourselves first. The sensory dynamic that you express needed for kids, I believe very strongly it's the same for adults. So we have to find what are hobbies, skills, and I'm not talking, you know, people think self-care, we, we joke about, oh, it's go get your nails done, you know, go have a massage, whatever. I do think massage is good, but because that's sensory. But I'm really thinking about what do we as adults do? We often have lost our hobbies. We've become so-and-so's parents and we've sort of lost our identity. So I think that this is a big picture thing where we need to not feel guilty and find things that make us happy and bring us joy. And that is has a huge trickle-down effect in a positive way to the children seeing that you have interests and hobbies outside of them. So that's part of it as well. But I have found, I have explored so many different things in my journey, in my own healing, and have found I've done yoga, I've done Qigong, which is like a form of Tai Chi. So it's like a movement meditation, which is talk about getting connected to the sensory internal self 
and how you feel inside. Phenomenal. So I do that, not just when I'm feeling dysregulated, but I do it as a hobby. And it really helps me enjoy every single day of my life. So when I finish work and then I do that, I do something after I finish work to break up the time between work and then dinner and everything and all, you know, life. And it is almost like I have two days in a day because that's how good it can make you feel and how calm it can make you feel. And sensory, I work with play also. Play-Doh is not just for kids. I don't use Play-Doh, but Play-Doh is not just for kids. It really does that tactile experience can be incredibly soothing. And another, another hint is if you're really feeling dysregulated as an adult or a child, put your child in a bathtub. I don't care if they're 14, you know, when you're putting them in there in their clothing because they can't calm down. Sometimes you really need to do some serious dramatic things to get them to calm down. But putting them in a shower, putting them in a bath, putting yourself in a shower bath, it actually calms the nervous system. Yeah, you know, on your um, on your point about taking, don't feel guilty to take time for yourself as a parent um, and the hobbies of that. I do also want to kind of raise the point about um, parents who may not have the support, may not have the access to go do yoga, to take time away. Is there anything you can speak to about um, maybe things they can do for themselves in those moments if they don't have that access? So in that regard, YouTube is an amazing thing. And I literally am standing right here in my house. I can't get away from my house. (laughs) <laughs> but there are resources that they are out there in that in the, for those types of hobby type things. But Nita has more resources for it. I always say self-care doesn't have to take too long. It can be a 10-minute coffee in the morning without the kids, before the kids wake up, without hearing the noises and the sounds, because that's that time that you have for yourself, right? I know it takes 10 minutes. It just... 10 minutes less uh, sleep. However, it is really important to have that and knowing, you know, making that a habit and also knowing when we need that break, when we need that time and other things, taking a walk with or without a child, depending, because sometimes that can be also a great experience to do together because that's a self-regulation thing for both of us as parents and the child. It can be just picking up some leaves that's on the floor and just exploring it with them, connecting with nature. So things like that that are really not, doesn't have to be like costing classes and things like that. And also one thing I want to kind of invite all parents out there is to kind of keep thinking and exploring what they might like because it changes it changes as we grow because growth is not non-stop our brains we're talking about our nerve development it's just it's lifelong and I say that for myself as a person who hated running I just became a runner two and a half years ago and I can't stop running races now so again I passionately did not like that but It was for me, that was a connection. I connected with local group and free, just running friends. That was connection for me that helped me with the hobby to like that. So just to, as an example, you know, um, that connection, those relationships is really important, especially if they have past trauma, because those relationships really help us cope with what we are going through. And on top of all the awareness and the self-care we talked about. um, So just to be open-minded, 
we might like things that we really did not like before that are really free around us all the time that we just never tried before. But self-care activities to do with your child is, I think, also important. And there's a difference in terms of is this self-care or is this something for my child? Hopefully there might be some things that you can do with them that helps you regulate, that helps you do self-care and helps them as well. And there's definitely those times that you need your own self-care to be able to be available as a parent and better parent and better you know, person for yourself first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Uh, I would really love to um, just take a minute to open the floor for the resources that you know you both have mentioned in this podcast. If you wanna, if you wanna share those real quick, that parents can take advantage of. Um, so I'm going to hand most of that over to Nita because KidSafe, which is the group that I'm, the team that I'm on is a new partner with the Center for Child Counseling that Nita is from, and now I am from as well. But on our website, that we have a website called kidsafefoundation.org. We have a parent page there, and they can learn a lot more there about sexual, particularly about sexual abuse prevention and how to integrate some prevention tools, like teaching kids about consent and boundaries and whatnot on that particular site. And soon that will be migrating, I'm sure, over to the other site. And then Nita has a whole bunch of other tools available as well. Yes, uh, we have so many free resources on our website at centerforchildcounseling.org. And if you click on training tab, we have a way of being manual. That is a manual that has so many practical information and skills for parents, for caregivers, for teachers. And that we also have so many tip sheets in terms of how to help children uh, self-regulate, create calm down corners we have so many free trainings as well and that is under the resources and training tabs on our website they all come with free tip sheets um, there's online videos that's on demand that you can start and pause and continue anytime you want because I know as parents we're very busy it's not possible to start and finish something sometimes at the, you know in the same time so so many resources free resources we have please feel free to explore we also have uh, post so many helpful videos on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, so if you go to uh, Center for Child Counseling on YouTube, uh, we have so many educational free videos as well. Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in and listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. Uh, the VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free and confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone.